Section 10 of The Book of the Ocean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of the Ocean by Ernest Ingersoll. Chapter 6, Part 2. Warships and Naval Battles, Part 2. The Present Era of Steam and Steel. The introduction of steam made little difference in naval affairs at first, so far as either strategy or tactics are concerned, although it changed the conditions of naval action in two principal ways, and in many minor ones. Ships could now, like the early galleys, be placed in any position the commander pleased, and, unlike galleys, this effort could be sustained a long time, for engines do not tire out like human arms. On the other hand, ships propelled by steam need to return to port at frequent intervals to obtain coal, and naval powers found it necessary to provide, either by possession or treaty, safe coaling stations in various parts of the world for the use of their cruising fleets. The first steam warships were naturally fitted with side paddle wheels, but as soon as the screw propeller came into use, the Navy was quick to adopt it. By its use, the whole motive power could be protected by being placed below the waterline. It interfered much less than the paddle with the efficiency and handiness of the vessel under sail alone, and it enabled ships to be kept generally under sail. Great importance was attached to this as the handling of a ship under sail was justly thought an invaluable means of training both officers and men in ready resource, prompt action, and self-reliance. For this reason, masts and sails were retained long after they were admitted to be detrimental to the fighting qualities of battleships. Naval reformers had to wait until the last generation of old salts trained on blue water had died off and their scornful sneers at tea kettle seamanship had been silenced in the only way possible before they could persuade governments to build or men to serve in the new style of vessels in truth the transition from the fighting machinery and methods that prevailed until, say, the bombardment of Acre in 1840, to those that decided the inferiority of China in her struggles with Japan at the Yalu and elsewhere, was rapid enough to make even a sea-dog dizzy. The Kearsarge getting into position to rake the Alabama at the close of combat Excellent types of the war steamers, intermediate between the old two- and three-deckers and the sailless ironclads that followed, were those two actors in the most glorious sea-fight of the American Civil War, the Kearsarge and Alabama. In this great fight, which took place a few miles off the harbor of Cherbourg, France, one beautiful summer Sunday, June 19th, in 1864, much the same tactics prevailed as in any one of the earlier ocean duels. As the Alabama came on, she began firing the 200-pound pivot rifle forward, which was her main gun, while the Kearsarge was yet a mile away. 
the latter, waited a little before replying, but only a few moments elapsed before both were near enough and hard at it, each doing its best to get a position ahead of its antagonist for raking, a disadvantage which the other steadily avoided, and this caused them to follow one another about in advancing circles, of which seven were described before the end came. We have a story of the battle as seen from the deck of the Kearsarge, written by her surgeon, who had little to do except observe the conflict. The Kearsarge gunners, he tells us, had been cautioned against firing without direct aim, and had been advised to point the heavy guns below rather than above the water line, and to clear the deck of the enemy with the lighter ones. Though subjected to an incessant storm of shot and shell, they kept their stations and obeyed instructions. The effect upon the enemy was readily perceived, and nothing could restrain the enthusiasm of our men. Cheer succeeded cheer. Caps were thrown in the air or overboard, jackets were discarded, sanguine of victory the men were shouting as each projectile took effect that is a good one down boys give her another like the last now we have her and so on cheering and shouting to the end after exposure to an uninterrupted cannonade for eighteen minutes without casualties a sixty-eight pounder blakely shell passed through the starboard bulwarks below the main rigging exploded upon the quarter-deck and wounded three of the crew of the after-pivot gun with these exceptions not an officer or man received serious injury the three unfortunates were speedily taken below and so quietly was the act done that at the termination of the fight a large number of the men were unaware that any of their comrades were wounded. Two shots entered the ports occupied by the thirty-twos, where several men were stationed, one taking effect in the hammock netting, the other going through the opposite port, yet none were hit. A shell exploded in the hammock netting and set the ship on fire. The alarm calling for fire-quarters was sounded, and men detailed for such an emergency put out the fire while the rest stayed at the guns. The Kearsarge concentrated her fire and poured in the eleven-inch shells with deadly effect. One penetrated the coal-bunker of the Alabama, and a dense cloud of coal-dust arose. Others struck near the water-line between the main and mizzen-masts, exploded within board, or passed through burst beyond. Crippled and torn, the Alabama moved less quickly, and began to settle by the stern, yet did not slacken her fire, but returned successive broadsides without disastrous results to us. Captain Semmes witnessed the havoc made by the shells, especially by those of our after-pivot gun, and offered a reward for its silence. Soon his battery was turned upon this particular offending gun for the purpose of silencing it. It was in vain, for the work of destruction went on. We had completed the seventh rotation of the circular track, and begun the eighth. The Alabama, now settling, sought to escape by setting all available sail, four trysail and two jibs, left the circle amid a shower of shot and shell and headed for the French waters, but to no purpose. In winding the Alabama, 
presented the port battery with only two guns bearing and showed gaping sides through which the water washed the kearsarge pursued keeping on a line nearer the shore and with a few well-directed shots hastened the sinking condition then the alabama was at our mercy thus ended the fight after one hour and two minutes one incident of this battle much talked of at the time and given as an excuse for their defeat by the confederates though without good reason was the fact that the waist of the kearsarge opposite the engines was protected by anchor chains hung in close festoons on the outside of the ship and kept in place and concealed by a boxing of thin boards this however was not the first attempt at protecting ships by armor which had now become necessary to meet successfully the better guns and projectiles that year by year were increased in penetrative power new powders and explosives were constantly being invented also each more effective than the preceding and as these were not only used in guns but applied to the filling of shells these bursting missiles for a time almost displaced solid shot along with this the discovery and perfection of the bessemer and other processes of making steel and methods of adapting rifling to great cannon produced a rapid and varied increase in size and an improvement in quality in the guns supplied to ships as well as in those used upon shore against these new weapons the old wooden walls were of no avail oak and teak however sound and thick failed to turn aside the conical projectiles as they had the old round shot and shell the ponderous missiles would crash clear through smashing everything in their paths and sending showers of death-dealing splinters right and left the navy had to protect itself by a revival of the armor with which knights of the middle ages guarded against arrows and javelins and sword points by and by when guns and bullets came the knights thickened their armor in an attempt to resist these new missiles until at last it reached a weight too great to be carried and the whole cumbrous panoply had to be laid aside and knightly tactics altogether changed many persons believe that this history will be repeated in the case of the sea warriors of the world which within the memory of many a grizzled admiral have changed from buoyant and beautiful ships to grim and shapeless fortresses afloat the americans fearless of sea traditions were the first to propose armor for ships but the french first practically applied it building several floating batteries covered with iron four and three-quarters of an inch thick in 1855. The English copied them in somewhat more ship-shape form, and then the French began boldly to sheathe some of their frigates with iron plates and call them ironclads. By this time, iron hulls had begun to be used commonly in the british merchant service but of course the men of war's men the slowest class of persons on earth to accept any change insisted that iron would by no means do for warships 
nevertheless a few progressive spirits persuaded their high mightiness the lords of the admiralty to try an experiment in building one and in eighteen sixty the first iron warship was launched and named warrior while all the old salts wagged their heads and predicted the end of britannia rules the waves until there wasn't a really jolly tar to be found from penelor point to pentland firth to a certain extent these hardy old growlers were right though their idea of a remedy was wrong it proved a failure to build old-style battleships of iron or even of steel or to coat them all over with armor even when greatly thickened not only were they slow and somewhat unmanageable but by the time one of them had been built with thicker walls than its latest rival somebody had invented artillery whose projectiles would penetrate it ships that are ship-shape that is possess masts and sails but are constructed wholly of iron or steel and more or less heavily armored have survived and will always be a part of the world's navies no doubt but their uses will be subsidiary to heavy fighting and with the disappearance of the wooden sailing line of battleship in the crimean war and of the iron war steamer a quarter of a century later all traditions of the old navy were ended traditions that went back to the days of drake but who could have foreseen that this swift and momentous upsetting should come about not through the efforts of the great sea powers of europe the giants who had been struggling for the control of the ocean for three hundred years but from the brain and purse of landsmen in a country of the new world not taken into account as a naval power at all you need not be told that it was ericsson's invention and henry grinnell's building and lieutenant warden's courageous fighting of the little monitor in hampton roads on that fair march sunday in eighteen sixty two that brought about this change with her turret the cheese box on a raft successfully withstood the assault of that heavily armed floating battery the merrimac or virginia all the warships of the world felt themselves beaten too and wise seamen saw that they must prepare to face a new foe at once all maritime governments began to build fighting vessels which were castles of steel afloat and smaller ships for various services that more resembled a nootka war canoe in outline than one of the frigates that used to do their work so shapeless were they that a new term had to be used and we began to call them cruisers all warships in fact are now classified by their work and not by their shape or size or rig first fewest and heaviest are the harbor defense vessels monitors and massively walled floating batteries intended to remain in harbors or close to the coast as movable forts second battleships the strongest most thickly armored heavily armed style of ships that can be made and still be able to go to sea but these are not expected to leave their home ports for a long time 
nor to go to any great distance unless compelled to do so in actual war third cruisers these take the place of the old-fashioned lesser fighting ships the seventy-fours frigates corvettes and sloops and vary greatly in size model speed and power of armament fourth small swift strongly armed but lightly armored torpedo boat chasers small gunboats for use in rivers and shallow coastal waters dispatch boats dynamite cruises such as our american vesuvius towboats and similar minor craft the runabouts of the naval service fifth torpedo boats the material of all these is steel wood is no longer permitted even in the fittings of their cabins because wood will splinter and burn the great hull of a modern battleship as described by lieutenant s a staunton of the u s navy which supports and carries the vast weights of machinery guns and armor aggregating perhaps more than ten thousand tons is built of plates of rolled steel varying from one and three-eighths of an inch thick at the keel to three-quarters of an inch at the water-line these are closely jointed and fitted and bound together with straps angle irons and brackets so as to make a strong unyielding structure braced in all directions then through the central part of the ship at least vertical plates are erected upon the frame and outside plating which bear a second or inner bottom thus forming the double bottom as high as the water line having the space between the inner and outer sheathing separated into a multitude of small water-tight cells so that an injury to the outside hull would not cause the vessel to leak unless the inner bottom were also punctured throughout the whole length of the vessel reaching from side to side and from keel to the main deck are many steel bulkheads sufficiently strong to resist the pressure of the water and communicating only by water-tight doors so that even were an accident such as a collision or running upon a rock or an enemy's shell to open a hole through both bottoms the ship would still float because the inflowing water would be confined to a single compartment leaving the rest of the ship dry and buoyant nothing less than the blow of a ram smashing through everything and throwing several compartments into one would be likely to sink such a ship and this is one reason why ramming has again become prominent in naval tactics but while safety from sinking is thus reasonably assured there is more a precaution of seaworthiness against the accidents of storms than towards injuries receivable in battle passenger and freight steamers now have the double bottoms and water-tight compartments and the best of these have arrangements for mounting light but powerful guns upon their decks so that they may be utilized by the government in a war emergency as light cruisers as armed transports as swift scouts or in other highly important ways they will then be coated with a light protective armor 
but will not be expected to engage in a contest with a real fighting vessel the idea of armor plate is as has been said scarcely half a century old and the moment it was put on amid the jeers of the old line-of-battle tars who thought they had done all that the dignity of the profession permitted when they arranged their rolled-up hammocks along the bulwarks to catch musket-balls and spread nettings to prevent somewhat of the flight of splinters ingenious men began to improve their powder and strengthen their guns to overcome the new defences to meet these improvements armour has been increased and perfected until now war vessels are no longer ships in any proper sense of the word but floating fortresses of steel the names of whose defensive parts even have been borrowed from land fortifications such as turret and barbette a limit to this defensive strength is marked in two directions first by the size it is possible to make a vessel and still keep her seaworthy and manageable and second by the weight of armor such a vessel can carry in addition to the weight of the framework machinery guns and other things necessary these limits seem to be reached some time ago in some of the monstrous battleships built in europe and when it was found that even while they were in construction rifled guns had been invented that would drive their projectiles through the thickest wall of wrought iron or steel that these or any other vessels could carry naval constructors began to despair of keeping ahead of the gunmakers and there was even talk of abandoning armor altogether and fighting battles out with bared breasts as we used to do note the percentage of weight which may be allotted to armor in the design of a ship limits the area which can be wholly protected but often permits the partial protection of other areas of less importance to her vitality and destructive force motive power steering gear and magazines stand first upon the list of those features demanding complete protection the heavy shells from an enemy's guns may do many other forms of injury besides sinking a vessel and disabling her crew they may strike and disable her engines or pierce her boilers causing disastrous explosions they may injure her steering gear destroy the mechanism which controls her turrets and guns or injure the guns themselves and their carriages in every feature of offence which renders her a formidable and dangerous foe her speed her mobility the fire of her guns a man of war is dangerously vulnerable unless she be protected by armour unless the enemy's shot be rejected by plates which it cannot penetrate. End of note. Then came an invention that put a new face upon the matter. The surface hardening of plates, composed of a mixture of nickel with steel, which, from one of its perfectors, is known as Harveyizing it. Other processes also are known. This gave to the surface of the metal such a flinty hardness that the heaviest and most highly tempered steel projectiles would almost invariably break to pieces when they struck it. The same projectiles that were able to punch a hole clear through a target plate of ordinary wrought steel, 22 inches thick. Plates thus surface hardened are now made in Europe, and as well if not better in the United States 
where we have learned and taught the rest of the world how to make them by rolling a much better as well as a cheaper process than a former method of hammering them into shape it was found that with these hard surfaced plates much less thickness was required to contend successfully with the great guns opposed to them than had been the case before and the great saving of weight enabled a much larger extent of armor to be borne upon a ship than was formerly possible so arranged as to protect all her hull and vital parts thus in a typical modern battleship say three hundred and sixty feet long seventy-two feet broad and drawing twenty-four feet of water having an armor of surface hardened nickel steel this armor is thus disposed amidships and a quarter of her length behind the point of the prow is built up a semicircular barbette or wall of the thickest armor behind which is a turret moving to the right or left through an arc equal to half the horizon no higher than necessary to cover and work the guns and having its motor mechanism fully protected by the barbette this is the forward turret a swinging fort carrying with it as it turns two of the heaviest guns in the ship halfway from the center to the stern stands the after turret and its barbette similarly built of the strongest armor ten to twelve inches thick and sweeping with its guns half the horizon from a point just in front of the forward barbette two walls of the heaviest possible armor reaching vertically from four and a half feet below the water line loaded to three feet above it extend diagonally backward to the sides of the ship then continue along its side in a belt to points opposite after the barbette where they bend inward as before and meet just aft of the after barbette but hereafter the increased efficiency of armor by further reducing its weight will probably enable the armor belts to be carried to the extreme ends of the ship which otherwise can be so seriously damaged by an enemy as to interfere with the speed and control of a ship in action even if it does not disable her but while these upright walls will resist a direct shot it is equally necessary to guard against a plunging fire therefore the space between the turrets at least must be roofed over with a steel deck two or three inches thick to deflect shot that come just over the top of the armor belt in addition to this on each side of the vessel are erected one or two smaller turrets carrying somewhat smaller guns than those of the forward and after turrets and also protected by heavy barbettes which reach down to the armor belt and thoroughly protect the turning mechanism passage of ammunition etc these various upper parts are connected by defenses which may not resist the largest shells but are safe against smaller shot now what is the armament of this fortress which thus protects all the motive power and interior machinery of the ship by which she can be made so terrible an engine of combative force well it is as different from the bronze long toms 
and carronades of the old three-deckers or even from ten-inch smooth-bore dahlgrens of the days of our civil war as is the ship itself from old-time models in place of broadside batteries of forty or fifty cannon hidden in clouds of smoke there are now six or eight big rifles from whose muzzles wreaths of thin gas only drift to leeward and more striking still in contrast a ship is no longer comparatively helpless when headed or turned sternward to an enemy when the raking formerly so justly dreaded would be received but is rather more able to do damage in that position than by a broadside the guns themselves are marvels of structure and power all of those used in the united states navy are made by the government in the gun shops at the washington navy yard and are built up the methods and tools required for this are the invention of americans as well as the complicated arrangements for closing the breach and the carriages and mechanism for overcoming the tremendous recoil and handling the ponderous ammunition that latter often weighing hundreds of pounds is handed up to the gunners from the magazines below by hoists worked by electricity the history of the development of heavy ordnance especially that applied to naval uses is one of the most interesting chapters in mechanics the surprising number of ways of making a ship's cannon have been tried and rejected out of this two things now seem to be settled namely that a gun composed of steel in separate parts welded together is best and that the best missile to shoot from it is a conical shell very hard and heavy yet containing an explosive small in quantity but exceedingly powerful such guns are built up of a tube or core of steel of the required size upon which is shrunk a jacket covering the rear or breech half of the core outside of which are shrunk on several broad hoops the cutting out of the bore to exactly the proper caliber and the ploughing of the spiral riflings put the gun in readiness for its breech closing and other attachments this process requires several months involves large capital and powerful machinery and good results imply the very highest workmanship such are the guns of modern men of war and a first-class battleship carries four twelve or thirteen inch rifles that is having a bore twelve or thirteen inches in diameter several eight or ten inch rifles and many smaller guns arranged to be fired with extraordinary speed and hence called rapid-fire guns while her upper works and military tops fairly bristle with fierce little six four and one pounders revolving magazine rifles capable of discharging rifle balls as fast as a man can turn the crank to give some idea of the size and power of one of the thirteen-inch guns whose long muzzles in pairs project so far out of the turrets that hide their mountings and firing crew let me tell you that it is forty feet long more than four feet in diameter and weighs sixty and a half tons 
it requires five hundred and fifty pounds of powder to load it and the projectile weighs half a ton the muzzle velocity of the projectile is twenty one hundred feet per second with the stated charge and its energy is sufficient to send it through twenty six inches of steel at a distance of six hundred yards at an elevation of forty degrees the range of the gun will be not far from fifteen miles in such a ship deep down within the fortress is the massive and complicated machinery steam and electric upon which the life and activity of the whole structure depend the power is generated in four enormous boilers seventeen feet in diameter and twenty in length their steel shells one and a half inches thick built to carry a working pressure of a hundred and sixty pounds to the square inch each pair of these boilers placed fore and aft and side by side is installed in a separate compartment with fire rooms at the ends each boiler has four furnaces in each end which give eight to each fire room or a total of thirty-two the two boiler compartments are separated by a watertight bulkhead and by a deep broad coal bunker at the sides of the ship are also coal bunkers which supplement the heavy armor belt by the protection of a mass of coal twelve feet in thickness in itself a not inconsiderable earthwork which might arrest the fragments of a bursting shell that had succeeded in piercing the armor no casualty of naval combat can be worse than the penetration of high-pressure boilers by heavy shells their complete protection is an imperative condition quite as important as the protection of the magazines such is a modern battleship a wonderful and complex instrument of warfare as lieutenant staunton has expressed it she is filled he tells us with powerful agencies all obedient to the control of man the creatures of his brain and the servants of his will steam in its simple application drives her main engines and many auxiliaries steam transformed into hydraulic power moves her steering gear and turns her turrets steam converted into electrical energy produces her incandescent and searchlights works small motors in remote places and fires her guns when desired every application of energy every device of mechanism finds its office somewhere in that vast hole and the source of all the varied forms of power lies in the great boilers far down below danger of shot and shell under which grimy stokers are always shoveling coal decades of thought and study experiment and failure trial again with partial success and repeated trials with complete success have assigned to each agency its appropriate function and perfected the mechanism through which its work is performed these modern developments have added one entirely novel and tremendous adjunct to the fleet in the torpedo boat and its terrible weapon 
these take the place to some extent of the fire-ship of a century ago which was designed to injure the enemy not by silencing his guns or overcoming his gunners but by insidiously destroying his ship itself the torpedo is in its simplest form simply some arrangement of a powerful explosive to be set off beneath or against the bottom of a ship and shatter or sink it the idea is as old as gunpowder but it is only in recent times that it has been made effective how effective we do not yet know torpedoes are used in two ways one is by fixing the torpedo beneath the water either to be exploded by means of a percussion cap when the ship runs against it or from the shore by means of electricity such arrangements as this called submarine mines are regarded as a most important means of defending harbors against hostile attack during our civil war they were extensively used by the confederates and were sometimes successful as when one destroyed the monitor tecumseh in mobile harbor during farragut's famous attack there in eighteen sixty four the former class for which the word torpedoes is now reserved includes explosive agents which are to be placed or sent against a ship's bottom at sea and exploded there various devices of that kind also have been used for a long time in naval warfare the confederates tried hard to destroy several northern vessels in the blockading squadron by devising very small half-submerged boats towing torpedoes astern or else projecting on a long spar from their bows and now and then they succeeded as when one of the latter kind was made to sink the housatonic off charleston then there have been invented during the past fifty years several cigar-shaped machines which by means of a chemical or compressed air engine or clockwork or some other application of power that might keep motive machinery within them going long enough could be launched from shore or from another vessel and sent under water against a hostile ship at first these were made to glide along just beneath the surface carrying little flags that could be seen and trailing two electric wires enabling a person by means of electric currents to direct their flight but latterly ingenuity has devised such an arrangement of rudders and self-acting balances within the torpedo's mechanism that it will continue perfectly straight upon the course it is aimed for swerving neither right nor left nor up nor down and will explode the instant it touches an object hard enough to jar the delicate cap of fulminate in its snout this latter kind called the automobile or self-moving torpedo is now almost exclusively used and some modification of the whitehead is most popular it is cigar shaped and about twelve feet in length the forward third is filled with gun cotton in quantity sufficiently powerful if accurately applied to ruin almost instantly the greatest battleship afloat all large warships are now fitted with tubes opening near the waterline in various parts of the hull which form gun-like exits for these terrible weapons which are set in motion by a puff of gunpowder 
but in addition to this every maritime government now has a number great britain has more than two hundred and fifty of small swift steamers designed wholly for this purpose and called torpedo boats most of them are a hundred feet or so in length and intended to accompany the fleet wherever it goes in all weathers but some are so small that they may be carried on the deck of a big cruiser all are made long low and narrow and the speed of many of them exceeds thirty miles an hour there is almost nothing to catch the wind or show above deck except a pair of short flattened smokestacks one behind the other and the steersman stands with only his head and shoulders visible in a little box with windows that serves the purpose of a wheelhouse a mere wire railing saves the crew from sliding off the deck and in action everybody stays below no weight is carried that can be avoided and the engines taking steam from two boilers are as powerful as can be packed into the space at command usually only coal enough for a few hours steaming is carried and every bushel of it is carefully selected as to quality and is so treated and intelligently fed to the furnaces as to make the hottest possible fire although never a spark must escape from the smokestack to betray the vessel in the darkness Next to speed, the most important quality is ability to turn quickly, upon which might often depend the safety of the audacious little craft. Torpedo boats, however, are designed for a wider service than simply to carry and discharge the frightful weapon from which they take their name. They are to the navy what scouts and skirmishers are to a land army. They form the cavalry of the sea of which the cruisers are the infantry and the battleships and monitors the artillery arm they must spy out the position of the enemy's fleet hover about his flanks or haunt his anchorage to ascertain what he is about and what he means to do next they must act as the pickets of their own fleet patrolling the neighborhood or waiting and watching concealed among islands or in inlets and river-mouths, ready to hasten away to the admiral with warning of any movement of the adversary. It is not their business to fight, except rarely in that one particular way, but rather to pry and sneak and run for the benefit of the fleet they serve. But to ensure all these fine results, both officers and men must be taught the art constant instruction and drilling are necessary and in each navy a regular school of torpedo practice is maintained where the subject is studied in every way in the united states such a school is kept at the newport rhode island torpedo station where the torpedoes themselves are fitted for use and supplied to the ships the loaded warheads are kept separately in the ship's magazine, and where one or more torpedo boats are reserved for drilling purposes. But a worse and more insidious foe than even these sneaking, hiding surface torpedo boats threatens us in the submarine torpedo boat, which inventors have been experimenting with since naval warfare first began. 
it is said that twenty-five hundred years ago drivers were lowered into the water in a simply constructed air-box to perforate the wooden bottom of an adversary's war-galley and sink it again in our revolutionary war a tiny walnut-shaped boat was made by an american which was actually tried it would hold one man and air enough for him to breathe for half an hour he would close the hatch let in enough water to sink him a little way and then scull himself along by means of a screw-bladed stern oar until he got underneath the keel of an anchored vessel to which, by ingenious means, he would attach a can of gunpowder to be fired by clockwork, giving him time to get away. It was actually tried and nearly succeeded. Robert Fulton, who made the first success of the steamboat, tried for years to contrive a submarine boat that would work, and succeeded so far as to scare British blockaders in 1812 very badly indeed and the confederates repeated the scare when the north was blockading their ports in the civil war the great advantage of a submarine boat is of course its invisibility and its safety from shot even if discovered but the difficulties of progress and control as to depth and direction under water and at the same time effective appliance of the explosive and safe retreat are so many that they have as yet been only partly overcome. If the thing is ever accomplished, naval warfare will be demoralized until some adequate means be found to combat this unseen destroying agency. The principal agent in submarine attacks would probably be some form of dynamite, which, Inhuman as its use seems, is slowly but surely taking its place among the weapons of war. The United States has one vessel primarily designed to employ dynamite by hurling it in the form of shells. This volcanic craft is suitably named Vesuvius, and is a small, swift vessel having long tubes slanting upward through her forward deck, as shown in the illustration these tubes are the muzzles of great air-guns through which she sends darts loaded with dynamite to fall upon a hostile ship or fort it would not be safe to say the least to fire such bombs with gunpowder and therefore pumps and engines in her interior compress air until it has acquired an expansive force sufficient for the purpose when one of the darts has been laid in the breech of the tube down beneath the deck and suitably closed in, a valve is opened. The compressed air acts like burning powder, and away goes the dart in a graceful curve towards its target. In this case, of course, it is the vessel rather than the immovable gun that is aimed and good marksmanship depends upon accurate calculation of distance but remarkable shooting has been done this system has never yet been tried in actual warfare and may prove valuable chiefly in clearing harbors of mines end of chapter six end of section ten